um, worship guides at the, uh, at the place where the sermon title and text are just beneath. You'll find um, some notes, the, the text for this morning from Nehemiah 4, and then some scripture texts, even three uh, fill in the blanks. I did this last Sunday. This is not uh, a, a pattern. It just seemed like a good thing to do uh, again. Uh, Aaron uh, stayed awake last Sunday, and it worked so well that I thought I'd, I maybe would try it, uh, try it again. We're talking for three weeks about the family. Um, through thick and thin, because sometimes family does get thick and thin, right? And now, family, as Miss Kristen said, we, we have different shapes of family. Some of, some of you are mom and dad and 1.94 children, which is the average. And some of you are, um, are divorced or separated or widowed or single. But whatever, we, we all have family, with, with only, I'm sure, a few exceptions. All of us have living family of some sort, so all of us are in this, this conversation about family together. It's not only what we might imagine to be the, the nuclear family. We're going to talk about uh, marriage next week, and then the third week we'll talk about when marriage, uh, excuse me, when uh, family really is, really is hard. Carrie and I, our first um, apartment was in Louisville, Kentucky, where I began seminary in 1983, and we, we joined a church. We were part of a Sunday school class. One of our Sunday school outings was to the Bell of Louisville. It's a steamboat in Louisville, and uh, learned that in 1963, they began what they called the Great Steamboat Race. The Bell of Louisville, the steamboat associated with Louisville, Kentucky, would race uh, the, the Delta Queen, which is associated with Cincinnati, just up the Ohio River. So, the Belle of Louisville, the, the Delta Queen, would race on the Wednesday before Kentucky Derby, every year in the, in the spring. The uh, other boats have taken the place of the Delta Queen, but steam, other steamboats now uh, race the, the Belle of Louisville on Wednesday before Derby Day, the great steamboat race. Clovis Chapel, 200 years ago, told the story of two such boats. Not in Louisville, but in Memphis. They pulled out onto the Mississippi River, headed south toward the Gulf about the same time. And they were, they were intended, it was not intended to be a race, but they pulled out about the same time, and, and the crew began to taunt each other. They began to talk trash to each other, challenging each other, and before you know it, they were racing side by side down the Mississippi. One of the crews uh, realized that they had not planned for a race, and so it took more fuel to go so hard and so fast, and they re recognized they were going to run out of coal. So out of desperation, one of them uh, went back to the cargo section and brought up some of the cargo, the merchandise that they were supposed to be transporting south, and started throwing stuff into the firebox. And and that stuff burned as well as the coal did. So they went and got some more, and they, they brought a lot of the cargo they were supposed to deliver somewhere south of there, and they burned it in the firebox. They won the race, Clovis Chapel said, but in the meantime, they, they sacrificed a good bit of their cargo. Life is a journey, and sometimes it feels like a race. In fact, sometimes we talk about the the rat race. And I'm afraid that some of us in this, in this race are sacrificing uh, the most precious cargo 
entrusted to us, our families. This morning, I, I want to encourage us to fight for our families. In the book of Nehemiah, there's a story about fighting for families. A little background before we, we read from Nehemiah 4. So, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, and they, they destroyed the city, burned the city, killed a lot of people. And those who survived the attack of the Babylonians were taken captive into Babylon, present-day Iraq. There they lived for seven decades, but 70 years after having been taken into captivity, they were allowed to go back to their homeland, to their mother city, the holy city of Jerusalem. As they began to filter back to Jerusalem, Nehemiah was, was placed in charge of the project of rebuilding. They would begin with the wall. The walls had been destroyed, and they, Nehemiah knew, they all knew that as they moved back into this city, they would be vulnerable. Their surrounding enemies would know that they were there, and the thieves could come and, and, and attack them without, a, without the protective wall. And so, they began by building uh, the wall. But there are these two guys, Tobiah and Sanballat, these really uh, whiners, complainers. They were local guys, but critics is a better word. They were critics. They criticized uh, those, the project. They said, ah, oh, you can't do this. You'll, you'll never get it done. And they, they hurled all kinds of insults at those who were rebuilding the wall. But when Tobiah and Sanballat realized that they weren't getting anywhere, the people were not becoming discouraged, they turned to a more sinister plan. They would attack. They, they, they organized an attack, a physical attack. So now they weren't just threatening the people of Jerusalem rebuilding the walls. Now the people's very lives were... Verse 13, therefore, Nehemiah writes, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the others, the officials, the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight. Fight for your people. Fight for your sons and daughters. Fight for your wives and fight for your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. With all that was going on, with the threat, with, with the urgency of, of building the wall, Nehemiah said, fight for your families. With all that's going on with us, Internationally, with all the international turmoil, with, the, with well, all the domestic divisions we, we, we see and, and the economic uncertainties and the private struggles that so many of us have, those personal things that not many, if any, know about, from, from, from Ukraine to your own personal struggles, with all that's going on, I believe that the words of Nehemiah are as, as applicable today as they were 2,500 years ago. Fight for your families. Nothing is more important than our families. Before there were temples and synagogues, there were families. Before there were churches, there were families. Before there were governments, there were families. Right there in the Garden of Eden, at the beginning of history, 
God established the family. He must have thought that family would be the best way to share his love for us and his expectations for us. He must have thought the family is the best way to provide protection for us and and health for us. Fight for our families. God gave us our families for our spiritual health. Take Russia, for example. Now, I know we're all mad at at Putin for invading uh, Ukraine, but, but there are a lot of good people in Russia. When I was there a few years ago, spent a couple of weeks, I met countless wonderful Russian people. And I met some young adults who were followers of Jesus. Now, we were there not long after communism uh, fell apart in Russia. Of course, during communism, we would have called that society godless, and churches were closed, and mentioning God publicly was prohibited. I, I visited with some pastors who had spent a great deal of time in prisons, one who'd been arrested in a little hidden creek where they were doing a baptism in secret, but, but the soldiers found out he was arrested, spent a lot of time in prison. But when communism fell, and when it was legal to go to church again, Many of those churches filled. Many of the new Christians were young adults. So where did they learn about Jesus? Where did they hear the good news? Where did they read the Bible? It wasn't in school. They didn't hear it on the streets for sure. But in a society we would call godless, God was at work in in homes, in families, often through the babushkas, the, the grandmothers. Our society, I know you're concerned like I am about the the increasing secularization of of our society, that we are less and less a country of faith, and we're concerned perhaps about what seems to be a growing hostility toward the Christian perspective. Well, there's some things I can't do anything about. I, I can't change the grand sweep of culture, but I can be intentional about my family. So I want to ask you, is your family, is your family different from culture? Is God working, are you allowing God to work through your family for your health and protection for him to speak of his love and his expectations for you? Is, how's your family? Is your family worshiping a commitment to worship with other families. If we were to ask your family, if I were to come to your home and say, I want to ask you about mom or dad or brother or sister, and I want to ask you, do they act the same at home as they do at church? What would they, what would your family say? Let me ask parents, speak to parents real quickly who have kids at home. Are you doing devotions with your kids at night, maybe with the Bible or a book of family devotions? Are you... Do they, are they seeing you, if, if, if you're married at home, are they seeing God in your marriage? You know, they're going to hear uh, on the bus and on the, the internet and in the hallways, they're going to hear lots of options for sexuality. Are they, are they seeing a faithful, passionate marriage at home? Do they know that you love the church? I don't mean do you just bring them. Do they know that you love the church, there's so many things about our society we can't change. One thing we can do is be faithful in our families. Fight for your families. 
But God doesn't just give us families for our spiritual health. He gives us families for our mental and emotional health, too. Look at those verses on your outline. Psalm 107, 41, God sets the needy securely on high, away from affliction, and make his family, makes his families like a flock, just like sheep need a flock. Proverbs 14, 26, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge, a haven. Proverbs 17, 17, kinsfolk are born for times of trouble. And Psalm 68, 6, God sets the lonely in families so that we wouldn't be lonely anymore. In troubled days, we need our families, and these are troubled days. From bullying to body shaming, from the, the anxiety that lingers still from the, from the pandemic, from COVID, from the even depression that lingers from the pandemic, to the pressures of competition at work and at school, to the constant stress of our national division. These are troubled days for most of us. And we desperately need our families like a sheep needs a flock, like someone in danger needs a haven, a refuge. We need our families. We need our families, but so many of our families are in trouble. I would, in fact, be so bold as, bold as to say that the enemy, the devil himself, is, is attacking our families. It seems to have begun all the way back in the Garden of Eden. As soon as God established the family, the enemy was trying to undermine it. Remember how he turned Adam and Eve against each other, how, blame, how Adam blamed Eve for the first sin, and then how Cain and Abel turned against each other, and Cain killed his brother Abel. As soon as God established the family, it seems that the enemy began to undermine it, and he still, he still is. He's coming at us from several directions, from our priorities. He, he's so clever. He's called the deceiver. And he's so clever in, in somehow encouraging us to to, to establish priorities outside our family. He comes at us from our self-centeredness, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. He comes at us and, and makes us so self-centered that family becomes secondary. He comes at us morally, and he tempts us with temporary pleasures that sometimes we choose over our, our families. So what does it mean to fight for your family? Well, here, here's where you do your fill-in-the-blanks. Some of you all wondering if I was ever going to get to it. By the way, last week I, I had six points and five spaces. I just want to acknowledge that. And um, our son Grant came down at the end of the service. You know, fam you remember how, Kristen, you said family can be annoying? And so um, Grant came down and he said, uh, Dad, I'm a little confused. Like, you know, you said six things. And now which, which five did you want us to? It was terribly annoying, terribly annoying. So I just want to acknowledge that up front. But here are, the five, here are the three ways to fight for your family. First, fight for your schedule. Fight your schedules. That's what it means. Fight your schedules. Tony Campolo is a popular Baptist speaker and writer. speaks everywhere. He tells a story that has stuck with me. He said that he went to see his friend in a hospital. His, hospital, his friend had had a stroke. And and in order to make small talk, Tony said, was telling him all the places he'd been all over the world to speak. In fact, he said, I came straight from the airport to the hospital. And his friend, who loved him, said to him out of 
love. You go all over the world to people who 10 years from now won't even remember your name. But you haven't left time for the people who really care about you. That simple sentence changed my life, Kim Polo said. I've decided not to let my time be used up by people to whom I make no difference while I neglect those for whom I am irreplaceable. Now, I've never traveled all over the world to speak, never will. But I make choices every day, just like you do. And some of us choose to invest way too much time among people who for whom we're just another cog in the wheel and neglect those for whom we are irreplaceable. Fight for your families. Fight your schedule. Fight the onslaught of an overcrowded schedule. Carrie, my wife, is in New York City this morning with some uh, big group of our young adults. So she and some other young adults are in New York City working with the graffiti, our partner church in the Lower East Side. But Carrie knew what I was going to say this morning. Uh, She knew I was going to say, I was going to talk about fighting your schedule. You know, that's, that's part of the problem with being a pastor is when you talk about families, your families know what you, they listen to what you say. You know what she said? She said, I'm going to hold you to that. She said with a smile. Some of us have overcrowded schedules. If you want to fight for your family, I'd begin with your calendar. Fight your schedules. Second, fight your self-centeredness. Candidly, some of us are quite self-centered. Some of us have a sense of entitlement, it seems, a sense of entitlement that may be unprecedented in our, in our nation's history, maybe. A guy named Raspberry, William Raspberry, wrote an article not for Christianity Today or other, another Christian journal. He wrote it for the Orlando Sentinel, and I don't know how in the world I came across it. But the title of his uh, column was, Why the American Family is in Trouble. Why the American Family is in Trouble. Now, I hate long quotations, but I'm going to read one. Would you listen carefully? The key reason why the American family is in trouble is that too many American husbands and wives consider their families of secondary importance. Their number one priority is themselves, their personal growth, fulfillment, and all the other things we say when what we really mean is me first. Neither the economic nor the employment status of the parent is the key. In other words, it doesn't matter whether they have a fancy job and a big salary or a menial job and a small salary. It doesn't matter. He said what matters is whether the family is at the center of their concern. Why the American family is in trouble. Part of it is we're so self-centered. We want to be fulfilled. We want, we want to feel good about ourselves. We want to prove our worth. And some of us are sacrificing our family to do that. Fight your schedules. Fight your self-centeredness. Third, fight your temptation. Fight your temptation to sacrifice your family on the altar of temporary thrills. Fight your temptation to sacrifice your family on the altar of temporary thrills. If you have only time to write one word, fight your temptation. 
Maybe we'll talk about this more next week, but, but let me say when we talk about marriage, but let me say briefly that we certainly ought to invest in our marriages. We, we really should invest in, you know, time together and all those things that maybe we will get into next week. We ought to invest in our marriages, but also important, equally important, is establishing boundaries to protect our marriages. Carrie and I, almost uh, 40 years ago, established some boundaries because we love each other deeply, but we're humans. So we established boundaries, not only a commitment to invest in our marriages, but some fences uh, to protect our marriages. Like how much, so I'm encouraging these boundaries, like how much time you will spend with someone of the opposite sex and where you'll spend time with them. So many families have fallen apart over something that began so seemingly innocent. That, that flirtation at, at the work site, at your work site, the office, wherever you work, that flirtation is just an innocent thing, you say. Nobody's getting hurt, you say. It's just an innocent little vice, you say. But that's wrong. You are playing with fire. Pornography is just an innocent little vice, you say. Nobody's getting hurt, you say. Nobody even knows but me, you say. But that's wrong. One, if you're, if you're married, then pornography degrades your spouse, dehumanizes her or him. But more than that, the enemy uses pornography like a, a, a hacker uses email. You know, you, the hacker will send an email to a gullible or naive person who doesn't know what that email is, and when they click on the email, then through cyberspace, and I don't know exactly how this works, but through cyberspace, this virus travels. And you don't know why, but your, your computer's not working right, and then you get the tech person out there, and they say, ah, you opened an email, didn't you? So the enemy uses that harmless vice to corrupt our minds and our, our hearts. Pornography is not just a, a harmless little vice. Fight the temptation to sacrifice your family on the altar of temporary pleasure. Fight your schedules. Fight your self-centeredness. And fight the temptation to sacrifice your family on the altar of temporary pleasure. Do you know Mike Rowe from uh, Dirty Jobs? Remember him? Isn't that a great show? Mike Rowe is he's just this funny guy. Well, he's, his, uh, his mom, Peggy Rowe, wrote and published her first book at age 80, and since then has become a New York Times bestseller. And her first book is titled, uh, About My Mother, and I want to close with a story from Peggy Rowe's book, About My Mother. Her mother, Thelma, became a real estate agent when her two daughters were grown and gone. And she was a really good real estate agent. 
one of her strengths was that she would tell you if you needed to work on your house. So somebody would have her over and say, we want to sell our house. She would say, this house will never sell as is. You've got to do this and you've got to do that. And she'd give them all the things to do uh, to, to make it sellable, to make it attractive. And so that was one of her strengths. So she got a call from uh, a young couple said, come over. Uh, we want to sell our house. Come over and look at it. She walked in and she said, oh my, this will never do. She said, this house is a mess, and um, you've got a lot of work to do to, to make it sellable. So she, gave, she wrote down all the things that they were going to have to improve in order to make that an attractive house. And she said, when you finish the list, call me. Months passed. No call. Until finally, the young couple called Thelma, the real estate agent, said, we want you to come over. So Thelma went over and walked in the house, and it looked fabulous. They had done everything she said. It was just a wonderful house. And she was thinking, I'm going to make a big commission on this house. We did everything you suggested, the young husband said, with pride. And the wife added, in fact, we like it so much, we've decided to stay. <laughs> it's exactly, she said, what we were looking for. If your family is not what you wish it were, don't leave. Fight for your family. Fight for your family. With the exception of abuse. With the exception of abuse. If your family is not what you had hoped it would be, don't leave. Fight for your family. I heard once that the grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. The grass is greener where it's watered. Your family needs you. Our culture, our nation needs strong families. And you need your family. So fight. Fight 